Welcome back to Art Holes, everybody. My name is Michael Anthony El Blanquito, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has no background in either topic. I'm happy you're back and decided to sign up for wherever this story takes us after our long trip through Golden Shrimps, Port Charles II in his pajamas, and the hero's journey taken by one man's fake leg. Before we get started, I just want to thank everybody who's been rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. I said it last series and I can't say it enough. It's incredibly humbling. I'm just glad people are enjoying the show and feel like they're getting something out of it. And I hope everybody's as excited as I am to start Frida's story. It really comes out of the gate pretty hot. We'll be meeting a lot of interesting people in this episode. A number of them are members of the Kahlo family itself. There's a lot of family that happens to this family. And I know that's an inelegant way of phrasing that. But there's so much that's happening here that a few of the historians casually throw around the term trauma, which to me just sounds like family. So to the extent that you prescribe to the idea, even partially, that we are products of our environments, let's take a peek inside this home. The Kahlo family story begins like a lot of family stories begin, though mostly this ends up in messy breakups with HR paperwork and occasional litigation. It begins with an office romance. It's around the year 1897, and we're in a quaint jewelry store in Mexico City called La Perla, and it's an office romance that's between two people who have an absurd amount of life experience for their respective ages. The La Perla was a German-owned jewelry store, and one of the employees was a woman named Matilda Calderon. Matilda was 24 years old, originally from Oaxaca, and was said to be stunningly beautiful. While she didn't have a formal education, she was said to be naturally intelligent and very good with numbers. She had a Spanish general father, and her mother was a photographer of Amerindian descent, so Matilda was a blend of a lot of what we learned from last episode. After Matilda was born, her parents went on to have 11 more children. 11! I had like a visceral reaction when I read that. That is objectively too many children to be confident that everybody involved is still happy with that amount of children. After kid number 8, one of you is not on the same page anymore. All those younger siblings also explains Matilda's lack of a formal education. If you're the oldest daughter of 12 in the late 1800s, really anywhere, you're helping to raise those kids. That's your school. The Calderon family was Catholic, like most of the country was now, and Matilda was very devout, even for the time. She loved Jesus, and being 24 and unmarried was rare, especially for how beautiful she was. It was a pretty simple formula for the time. If you were beautiful, devout to the church, and still a single working woman at 24 years old, it meant that something was wrong with you. People were going to have questions. With those credentials in 1897, you should already have like 39 children. She did come close to marriage once. Uh, Matilda almost got married to her first love, a young German man that she absolutely adored. But then he killed himself in front of her, so the wedding was canceled. That is a tough way to re-enter the dating pool. And while working at La Perla, surrounded by the accent of the man she loved, Matilda met another German man, her co-worker, Guillermo Kahlo. Guillermo was born Carl Wilhelm Kahlo, which is not even close to Guillermo, in the Grand Duchy of Baden in Germany in 1871. 
Frida would later tell everyone that Guillermo was Jewish. He was not at all Jewish. He was Lutheran. He was really Lutheran. The documentary evidence points to him being Lutheran, and Matilda doesn't exactly come across as the marrying a Jewish guy type. It's not a knock on her per se, it was just the reality of the times. Frida will say a lot of things that are not 100% reflective of reality. It's often a happier version of reality that she's building for herself. They're, they're Frida truths, and they're a bit of an onion that we're going to need to peel through this series. In this instance, when she was in the public eye and people started to ask about Guillermo's ancestry, it was right around the time of World War II. So maybe it was easier to identify Dad as a German Jew at that point rather than just plain German so nobody gets the wrong idea. These Frida truths are little magical touches to reality to make things better for herself and those people around her. Young Carl Wilhelm Kahlo, he's not Guillermo yet, was smart and had a lot of academic potential, and his family had enough money from his father's jewelry business to send Carl to the University of Nuremberg. That was the plan. He was on his way to becoming some sort of scholar. Those plans came apart in 1890 when Carl fell and hit his head, causing a serious and traumatic brain injury, which also caused him to develop epilepsy that will give him lifelong seizures. An academic career is now no longer looking like it's an option. Right after the brain injury and epileptic seizures began, his mother died. 1890 was a really tough year for Carl. His father almost immediately remarried a woman who Carl did not get along with. And in 1891, when he was 19 years old, his father gave him enough please-go-away money that Carl bought a ticket on a ship that was headed to Mexico, the land of opportunity if you were light-skinned and European. When he got to Mexico, he changed his name to Guillermo to fit in better, even though he had a crazy thick German accent, I don't think anybody was fooled, and he became a Mexican citizen. He bounced around with a few odds and ends jobs over the years, uh, a glassware store, a bookstore, until he ended up working at the La Perla jewelry store where Guillermo Calo met the beautiful Matilda Calderon. When the two met, there were a few complications that prevented a relationship. The first complication was Guillermo's wife, Maria Cardenia, who Guillermo married in 1894. The second complication was their daughter, Maria Luisa. Even with those pesky complications, Guillermo was absolutely infatuated with Matilda, and they had their own Jim and Pam situation at La Perla, except that she didn't really like him that much at all. So you're telling me there's a chance. Guillermo rarely spoke and would sometimes go completely silent for extended periods of time and was kind of a weird, anxious little guy with a crazy mustache and eyes that were said to be, quote, a little too intense and at some points could look, quote, disturbingly agitated. I've got to return some videotapes. Those are, you know, not the sexiest qualities to have in a person. And on top of that, he was married with a child and Matilda was incredibly Catholic. There were quite a few roadblocks preventing this love from blossoming. Then in 1897, while she was giving birth to their second daughter, Margarita, Guillermo's wife died, which is a profound loss and had to be emotionally devastating. Guillermo is now a single father of Maria Luisa, a toddler, and a newborn Margarita, and he was grieving not just the loss of his partner, but the mother of his children who would help him instill values and give these girls unconditional love, one of whom will now never even meet her mother. And after his wife died, Guillermo grieved for almost the entire day. 
Later that night, and yes, we are still talking about the same day his wife died, Guillermo went to see Matilda, and in front of her mother Isabel, so she knew it was real, he asked Matilda to marry him, and she said, yes, this is wildly inappropriate. She still wasn't really into him because he was still weird and didn't talk at all, and the unresolved emotional baggage from earlier that day likely didn't help. But he would be a decent provider and maybe this German guy wouldn't kill himself in front of her. This is a love story for the ages. And in 1898, Guillermo and Matilda were married and the Kahlo family began. You could make a pretty convincing argument that the family already began with little Maria Luisa and Margarita, Guillermo's children from his previous marriage. But Matilda wasn't a fan of those kids and wouldn't allow them in the home, so she made Guillermo give them away to a local convent. They're still around and in the area, which I think might be weirder. They're just not being raised by their parents. We're going to go ahead and throw a red flag on this one. Uh, part of me wants to say, hey, it's a different time. Maybe this was in everybody's best interest. There are countless times that children are put up for adoption and it's wonderful. But we're going to learn that Matilda doesn't exactly project a lot of warmth and affection. So this may have also been a bit of a cold-blooded decision. It doesn't seem like there was an overwhelming reason for putting the girls into the convent other than Matilda didn't want them around. Now free of the shackles and burdens of the two existing daughters, Matilda and Guillermo got right to work on their own little family, having a daughter in 1898 that they named Matilda. We now have a second Matilda. You might even say, and I can't believe I get to do this two series in a row, you might even say that we have a bonus Matilda. This situation obviously being a bit different than the last time because here Matilda juniored up her daughter. So now we have Matilda Jr. and the Kahlo family is dominated by Matildas. It was also around this time that Matilda uh, Sr., not Jr., convinced Guillermo to take up photography. It was something that her father did to make some extra money and maybe Guillermo could too. It was a way to supplement their income. This turned out to be a fantastic call by Matilda, and Guillermo had an innate ability as a photographer, and he transitioned incredibly fast into that career and was successful in Mexico City almost immediately. He was known primarily for his photographs of buildings and architecture. Apparently, he was blunt in the way he captured an image. There were no photography tricks or techniques that I guess photographers use. I, I honestly know next to nothing about photography. I'm sure that's obvious as I fumble through this part. But Guillermo was great at capturing buildings for what they were. However, that's done. In 1902, the Kalos have another daughter that they named Adriana. So now it's Matilda Jr. and Adriana. They weren't given away to a convent. These two get to stick around. And I'm not sure who's on the raw end of that deal. The jury's still out on that one, at least for now. Then a few years later in 1904, Guillermo gets the photography commission that will change their lives. In addition to being naturally talented, he was also reliable on delivery of projects and was a hard worker. So that caught the attention of the Porfiriado, Porfirio Diaz's regime. Diaz's Secretary of the Treasury commissioned Guillermo to put together a photography series on the architectural history of Mexico, which would be unveiled at the 1910 Centennial Celebration of Mexican Independence. The unveiling is a few years away, so he's getting a ton of money to be the cultural historian of Mexico. That's why these Porfiriado contracts were so valuable. It got you a ton of money and you were set for years. It was with this newfound money that Guillermo and Matilda bought a piece of land in Coyoacan. 
Coyoacan was technically in Mexico City, and today is right in the middle of it, but back then it was functionally more of a remote village just outside of the city. And it was on this land that Guillermo and Matilda would build a large house to fit their growing family. The architecture was in a colonial style, and at the time the house was white, it wouldn't be until many years and additions to the property later that the house would get its famous blue paint and be called the Casa Azul, the house that's now the Frida Kahlo Museum. For the Kahlos, though, this is now just home, and it's going to be our home for quite a while. This will be the setting for a lot of our story, and a ton of weird shit is going to happen here, both involving the family as well as major figures in history from across the world. Things were pretty status quo with the Kahlos for a while, until probably the winter or spring of 1907, Matilda and Guillermo told Adriana and Matilda Jr. that they would soon be getting a baby brother or sister. And later that year, on a rainy 6th of July, 1907 at 8.30 in the morning, Matilda gave birth to a baby girl who would eventually be one of the most well-known and beloved artists of all time a baby girl they named Magdalena Carmen Frida Kahlo y Calderon, who they would call Frida, a name they got from the word Frieden, which in German means peace. Frida would later tell everybody that she was born in the Casa Azul itself, but her birth certificate has a different address, her grandmother's address. But regardless of where she was actually born, Frida is finally here. Soon after Frida was born, Matilda got really sick and couldn't nurse her, so Frida was fed by a wet nurse who was indigenous Amerindian, and this becomes important to Frida's Mexican identity later on. She'll often talk about how she was nursed by an indigenous woman. As soon as Matilda started to feel better, she got pregnant again, and in 1908, a year after Frida was born, she gets a younger sister named Christina. We now have the full Kahlo family. As soon as Christina was born, Matilda decided she didn't really want to be a parent anymore and just kind of checks out from motherhood. And there's a number of things that could have happened here. With 11 younger siblings and now her fourth daughter, Matilda's been raising kids for basically her entire life. And she has two older daughters to take care of the younger ones like she did. So finally she has the opportunity for a breather. This could also be a form of training. If women's role is going to be having and raising kids, you're going to actually want to give your daughters a bit of a trial run and some practice. I have no idea. But the result was that Frida and Christina were raised by Matilda Jr., Adriana, and when they came home from the convent, I guess to visit, the two original daughters, Maria Luisa and Margarita. When she was a toddler, Frida was said to have been adorable. She had a dimple in her chin and was said to have a mischievous look in her eye from very early on and was full of laughter. She was also by far Guillermo's favorite. Outside of his tendencies to go on prolonged stretches of silence, Guillermo didn't really pay attention to his other daughters. He wasn't really interested in them, and I'm not talking about the two he gave away. If he was giving any emotional attention to his daughters, it was to Frida. And that gap of emotional attention and this weird chasm between father and daughters, it only gets wider and weirder later on. As a mother, Matilda was still delegating much of motherhood to her older daughters and was not outwardly affectionate with the girls. She did teach the girls housemaking skills that they would need in order to prepare for that life, like how to do laundry, sew, and clean, but her general demeanor was more strict. She was the disciplinarian. Matilda also ensured that the girls had sufficient exposure to the Catholic Church and made sure the family went to church, not just on Sundays, but every day. Matilda even made sure the family had their own reserved bench at the San Juan Batista Church. 
Growing up, the girls were close, especially Frida and her younger sister, Christina. Being only a year apart will make them intricately bonded very early on, and that will only keep going. Even when they were very young, when Matilda used to make the girls pray every night before dinner, when everyone's head was down and eyes were closed, Christina and Frida would stare at each other and try not to laugh, and I'm sure that evolved into stare at each other and make the other person laugh. When Frida and Christina were old enough, they went to kindergarten together. And it's at kindergarten that Frida had her first memory. How cool is this? We get to talk about Frida Kahlo's first memory. Frida said that when she was around three or four years old, she vividly remembers her kindergarten teacher and her fake hair. And Frida would say, quote, She was standing in front of the dark classroom holding in one hand a candle, and in the other an orange and explaining how the universe worked, the sun, the earth, and the moon. It made such an impression on me that I urinated. They took off my wet pants and put on the pants of a girl who lived across the street from my house. Because of this, I took such a dislike to that girl that one day I brought her near my house and I began to strangle her. Her tongue was already out of her mouth when a baker passed by and freed her from my hands. Unquote. That's a fun story, except for the strangling part, and it's also a finely spun tale of bullshit. Most of that didn't happen. The universe and the motions of the planetary bodies, that's not standard curriculum in kindergarten. There's a really cool article by a psychologist and professor named Eve Kikas called The Development of Children's Knowledge, The Sky, the Earth, and the Sun in Children's Explanations, and it dives into this exact issue and it's been researched to death. Spoiler alert, three-year-olds are kind of dumb. It comes with the territory. They think night exists so we can go to sleep. This probably is not Frida's first memory. It's likely a much simpler version of that story, and it's the first time she could remember being embarrassed and mortified and vulnerable. The story then morphs into this amazement with the complexity of the universe causing spontaneous urination. That's a much better reason than I still wasn't in control of my bladder. And the girl whose pants she had to put on and maybe laughed at her, it then becomes this retribution story of Frida taking back the power by doing what sounds like attempted murder. It's just a much better way to remember an awful thing that happened. It's a magical truth that still operates in the realm of reality, and it doesn't really hurt anybody. This was a form of magical realism that was a coping mechanism to be able to process a ton of trauma, and it also becomes one of the more powerful elements of Frida's art. Most of Frida's stories or characterizations of events come from way later in life. She didn't start keeping a diary until about a decade close to her death. So when we hear a story or she says something about a person in a letter, it's possible that there's quite a bit of history there that's affecting her choice of words. When Frida was three years old and the family started to settle in, with Guillermo not really talking and Matilda dragging everyone to church, the Mexican Revolution broke out. What started as separate uprisings throughout the country then consolidated under various guerrilla armies led by Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata, those guys. And then later on, after Francisco Madero gets elected, there's the 10 tragic days in February of 1913, which is a crazy days-long battle between Porfirio Diaz supporters and supporters of President Francisco Madero. Mexico City gets bombarded with artillery that causes a ton of damage, and then President Madero and his vice president, a guy whose name I forgot, are double-crossed, and then Madero and the vice president guy, they both get assassinated, and there's a conspiracy, and Woodrow Wilson is involved, and the Americans try to go and capture Pancho Villa because we picked sides. Even the Catholic Church gets involved at one point. It was nuts. 
when the Zapatistas were in Coyoacan fighting the supporters of Venustiano Carranza and people are getting shot in the street and it is chaos. This stuff is happening right outside of their door. The Calos were one of the countless families living in the Mexican Revolution as cities are being bombarded from within. Frida would later say that during those battles, all the sisters would just sit together, terrified, not knowing what was happening, and waiting for something bad to happen to them. Quote, Matita, Adri, me, and Christy, the chubby one, that was a weird time for a dig, bullets hissed, I still hear their extraordinary sound while my mother and father watched out for us so that we could not fall into the hands of the guerrillas. Unquote. A civil war is not an ideal environment to raise children. That seems fairly obvious. But neither is knowing with relative certainty that not only you, but your children and their children's children will spend their entire lives living in absolute squalor, getting kicked out of not just their homes, but the entire villages needing to move because it had been occupying Hacienda land. People had nothing and they were desperate and they were willing to fight. And it's after these major revolutions, like in Mexico after Porfirio Diaz, and the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917, with their crazy monarchy with Tsars and Tsarinas, where all of the money is at the top 1% of the 1%, that communism really takes hold as an idea. The idea that the worker and the laborer deserve their fair share because they're the engine for everything. We will be talking a lot about communism in this series, not judging its validity, but being the background and the driving force for a lot of the story later on. For right now, though, the fall of Porfirio Diaz means the voiding of a lot of those lucrative government contracts so wealth could be more evenly distributed, which included Guillermo Calo's contract. The Calo family went from being totally set financially for the next few years, and likely after that, to being without an income. Guillermo did not handle losing his job very well, and for someone that was already prone to long bouts of silences, he started talking even less and would just kind of exist within the house when he was home. His mentally checking out didn't exactly make life easier for Matilda, who was now just trying to run the house, which they had to mortgage so they had money to live. Eventually, they had to sell a bunch of the living room furniture and even had to take on temporary boarders at the house to help pay the bills. They just had random strangers living there. I feel like this is back when drifters were way less feared. You would never do that today with four young children in the house. Still, every morning, Guillermo would wake up and go to his studio and office that was above the La Perla jewelry store and do, I don't know what, hang out, I guess, because he wasn't a working photographer anymore. He also didn't go out and try to find another thing to do to help support the family. He's just kind of there. Another illness is about to hit the Kahlo family, and it's an illness that will follow us through the rest of the series, physically, psychologically, emotionally, everything. When Frida was six years old, she contracts polio. The only thing I knew about polio before this is that people in America in the 1950s freaked out about it. And that's why FDR was in a wheelchair, and it just sounded like every other kid had polio. And just when you thought things were fine, the next day at school, little Timmy's desk is empty and everybody knows what happened. And that's the extent of my polio knowledge, which admittedly doesn't really seem like knowledge. And it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Polio was one of those weird epidemics that freaked everybody out in the 50s, but before that, it was just another pre-penicillin, pre-vaccination disease that was a part of life. 
Polio is a virus. It's the poliomyelitis virus, and it's mostly almost like any other virus in how people contract it, and it can cause sore throat, fever, headache, nausea, and most people don't even get symptoms. Unless you have the spinal paralytic or bulbar strains, which can cause all kinds of issues because it specifically attacks the nervous system and muscles. A smaller percentage would have irreversible paralysis, and some people's diaphragm muscles shut down and they suffocated to death. So when your kid got the sniffles, you'd freak out because you didn't know if it was just the regular cold or polio, and then if it was polio, you didn't know if your kid had the little Timmy kind. Polio outbreaks also tended to spike during the summer, so when school is out and there aren't any teachers around to point out that little Timmy's got the sniffles and the kids are all playing outside together, back in the day when kids used to go outside, they'd interact more, and younger children, like little Timmy, rest his soul, were more susceptible. Kids under the age of five, right around Frida's age, made up roughly half of all polio victims. At six years old, at a time when children are making friends and developing social skills, Frida was confined to her bedroom with polio for nine months so she didn't infect anybody else. She was locked in her bedroom for nine months as a six-year-old. That is a crazy long time. As a percentage of her life, that would be like if I just spent the last three and a half years in my bedroom. Over these nine months, a six-year-old Frida Kahlo would learn something that no six-year-old should learn. Profound loneliness and prolonged, excruciating physical pain. She ended up getting the spinal paralytic variety of polio that attacks the muscles and nervous system, and the attacks were focused in her right leg, and Frida said the pain was unbearable. The only thing medically that could be done was to wash her leg with walnut-infused water and put hot compresses on it, and I doubt that was effective. And by the time she recovered, Frida's right leg was withered from polio, which is really common with that strain. The muscles atrophy and the nerves don't work right. So now she has one regular leg and one leg that's really skinny. And the skinny leg is also a bit shorter than the other one because she lost some growth time in that leg. When she finally went back to school, she would try to hide the smaller leg by wearing more socks on her one thin calf. But kids knew, and they were of course mean. Her classmates would call her, quote, Frida Potatapalo, which means Frida Pegleg. Kids can be super mean, and she was teased and left out of other activities, and she became more introverted at this point. And Guillermo saw this happen, and because it was the daughter that he actually cared about, he made sure Frida took part in a lot of physical activities to make sure her leg didn't define her. Frida will now spend the rest of her childhood doing things that young girls for sure did not do back then. She played soccer, swam, climbed trees, would row boats and lakes, she wrestled and boxed, and she loved riding her bicycle. A young girl boxing, wrestling, and riding a bicycle was not a common sight, and the mothers of Coyoacan did not approve, and Frida did not care what they thought. She was also developing what will turn into a wicked sense of humor. Like one time when Maria Luisa, one of the older given away sisters, she was at the house and sitting on the chamber pot going to the bathroom. So Frida walked up to her and tipped her over with the chamber pot going all over the place. For all the love that Guillermo expressed to Frida and not so much as other daughters, it only got more pronounced after her polio. Even though he wasn't bringing in much, if any money, Guillermo would still go to the studio and office all day. And when he got home at the same hour every night, very German, very punctual, with a twinkle in his eye and in a low voice, he would always say, quote, Frida, lieber Frida, unquote, 
which means Frida, dear Frida. He would then turn and greet the rest of his family in a manner that was described as, quote, solemn, courteous, and a little severe. He would then walk into the room of the house that had the piano, shut the door, and stayed in there for an hour playing the piano alone. And he loved playing Johann Strauss's Blue Danube. Imagine you are one of the daughters that isn't Frida and you hear Blue Danube every night from the closed door of your father who I guess still loves you, but unequivocally has no interest in talking to you. You would learn to hate that song so quickly. He'd then come out of the piano room, silently eat dinner alone with only Matilda waiting on him, then go play the piano again, and then read before going to bed. Now, I am not a parent or a child psychologist, though it seems kind of intuitive that you shouldn't give all of your emotional attention to one of your six daughters. It is a divide among them that he will only make worse as Frida gets older, and from a child development standpoint, I imagine it creates a rather skewed reward system, and different daughters will have different abilities to gauge their self-worth, especially for Christina, who doesn't have the benefit of a large age gap like Matilda Jr. has to, to somewhat rationalize the fact that your father is treating your sister drastically different than you. Christina and Frida are practically the same age. This just doesn't seem like the right call. And it also has to be hell on a marriage. Keeping the entire house and family together was Matilda's job, and that can build up resentment and can cut you off emotionally when you're trying to keep everything together and Guillermo is just not helping. And on top of that, Matilda gave birth to a baby boy at some point, which they lost soon after he was born. Things are getting very tense around the house. Things were so tense that one day when Frida was young, like seven or eight, Matilda Jr. said she needed a favor. Matilda Jr. was, I think, 15 years old at this point, and she had been dating a boy named Paco Hernandez. One night, she told Frida that she needed her help to sneak out of the house to see Paco. Frida's job was to close the balcony window after the escape so nothing looked out of place, which she did, and Matilda Jr. snuck out and did not come back. That's it. Matilda Jr. is gone. She got the hell out of there and her and Paco ran away to Veracruz and eventually got married and had a life together. When Matilda Sr. found out, she was destroyed. Frida always said Matilda Jr. was her mom's favorite, a reasonable conclusion considering she juniored her up and she cried hysterically after her own daughter snuck out of the house and out of their lives. When Guillermo found out that his oldest, well, I guess his third oldest daughter, ran away, he said, quote, Nothing. There is no quote because he didn't say a word, he just kept not talking and playing Blue Danube. So now the two oldest girls are still in a convent, maybe, they're around, but not super into the family, and there's Frida and Christina, who were a duo, and then Adriana, and we're not going to hear much about Adriana, possibly because she's the middle child in the weirdest sibling situation I've ever heard of. She's kind of a Jan Brady. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! Matilda Jr. running away didn't exactly lighten up the mood around the house. Either Christina or Frida, we're not sure who, found a litter of baby rats, and I had to look this up, rats actually make really good pets. 
Not those shitty dumpster rats, but pet rats that you raise. They're actually incredibly smart and solve puzzles, and they form emotional bonds with their humans and recognize their owners by sight, and they want to hang out with them, and they're super clean, and I'm not a pet rat person. But when you're a kid, a pet anything is cool. Kids love animals, especially Frida. She will spend a lifetime loving animals. We're going to talk a lot about animals. Matilda, though, didn't exactly agree with her daughters that the litter of baby rats would make good pets, so she took the baby rats from the girls and drowned them. Now, there are a few things I want to say about waterboarding baby rats to death. And again, this is from the viewpoint of someone who is no one's spouse or parent. These are my I-live-alone-in-a-one-bedroom-apartment thoughts, but I am a former child, so I do have a certain perspective in these matters. It has to be hard being the authoritative parent when the other parent is off being aloof somewhere. You're always the bad guy, the disciplinarian that everyone is mad at. I mean, Frida's nickname for Matilda was Mi Jefe. Matilda loves her children, and they love her. I don't want to give the wrong impression. Kids tend to not appreciate the love of the disciplinarian parent or what it takes to be that parent until they're older and understand a bit more. And then when you're older, there's a whole other layer to the bond. It's like having a buddy that you went to war with. This is one of those relationships in Frida's life that we'll be following closely. Frida and Matilda's. And Matilda will do and say a lot of things that a young Frida doesn't like. It's called parenting. On the other hand, even when you are parenting, don't drown baby animals in front of your kids. I get it, the rats probably couldn't live on their own and it was an act of extreme compassion. Still, don't drown baby animals in front of your kids. It took a while, but after Matilda Jr.'s great escape, the Kahlo family eventually got back to normalcy. Matilda was maintaining the home and Guillermo still had trouble finding a steady job and he continued to, really unapologetically, spend most of his family time nurturing and enriching Frida's life. Of their close relationship, Guillermo would say, quote, Frida is the most intelligent of my daughters. She is the most like me, unquote. While that may be true, it might be a better idea to show some attention to your other daughters. But no, Guillermo would give books to Frida to read and they would talk about them. He shared his interests in nature and taught Frida about geology, animals, plants, different kinds of insects. And when this is happening, I guess Christina is just hanging out? And Frida would bring home different kinds of plants from the edge of the river, and her and Guillermo would look at them under a microscope and read about them in books. This is incredibly exciting. Guillermo's academic career got cut short because of his traumatic brain injury, and he was making sure that his favorite daughter would take his place. All the while, Christina and, uh, what's her face, Adriana, such a Jan, they were preparing for a guaranteed domestic life. And while those two baked and sewed and cleaned, Guillermo taught Frida about photography and how to retouch photographs, and all about the topics of a lot of his photographs, the architecture and archaeology from all the pre-Columbian ruins and the colonial buildings. Frida is incredibly bright, and from an early age in this type of enrichment, it was really feeding her intellectual curiosity and encouraging her to pursue more. It also made sure that Frida was prepared for the entrance exams for the National Preparatory School. The Preparatoria was a high school that was started after the French emperor, Maximilien, was executed, and since then, it had grown into an elite educational institution right in the middle of Mexico City. And because the government's ministers of education were directly involved with the administration of the school, politics were a daily part of the students' lives, and they were activists as much as they were students. 
During Porfirio Diaz's regime, this school became the place for the elite class and Europeans to send their children, and it was a pipeline into careers in medicine, law, foreign affairs, and diplomacy. Ever since the Mexican Revolution, the government was building more rural schools and trying to broaden the reach of education to everybody, not just the elite, though the preparatoria was still reserved for the elite. It was an incredibly bougie school. One of the more recent developments in expanding education was allowing women to take the preparatory entrance exams, which Frida took and passed in, we're looking at probably late 1921, early 1922. Actually, going to the school, though, was a different matter. Guillermo was worried at first because there would be boys in the high school, but Frida promised she wouldn't talk to any boys, an incredibly difficult promise considering of the roughly 2,000 students, only 35 were girls. I think the preparatoria was Guillermo's goal for Frida from the beginning, because that's a really dumb promise to ask somebody to make, and it really seemed to be his only condition. Matilda, on the other hand, was more worried about how far away the school was from Coyoacan, and that Frida would be out of her sight, which is exactly what Frida wanted. Her brain is jam-packed with science, literature, photography, a love of sports, a dark sense of humor, and she is bursting at the seams to become her own person, not just a child of her parents. And in 1922, Frida Kahlo enrolled at the Preparatoria in Mexico City, an institution that is woefully unprepared for someone like her. Guys, Frida's going to high school. To get to the preparatoria, Frida would ride one of the newer electric trolleys in Mexico City. During the industrialization process, Mexico City, like most cities, began moving away from animal-powered transportation to a more automated form. By the beginning of the 20th century, there were now a number of electric trolley lines, and one of those would take Frida on the hour-long ride to the huge colonial-style main building and large campus in the bustling Mexico City. The revolution itself may have been over for a few years, the, the military component of it, but there was still immense political turmoil and positioning for power amongst different factions. It wasn't outright warfare, but there was uncertainty and the preparatoria was knee-deep in all of that, and that's where the trolley is taking Frida. And I would dare say that the preparatoria was more prepared for the Mexican Revolution than it was for Frida Kahlo. Frida left the slow and insulated world of her neighborhood in Coyoacan and an entirely new world opened up for her as she stepped foot onto campus. Now surrounded by an entire environment and social structure that pushed and encouraged her academically, creatively, and socially, not just her weird helicopter parents, Frida flourished. As a matter of gender decorum and fancy people values, when the girls of the school weren't in class, they were expected to stay on the elevated platforms of the school's largest patio, wearing fancy dresses, gossiping, and giggling. Frida wanted no part of that life and called these girls, quote, esquinclas, which is kind of like a little kid and it comes from the word for little Mexican hairless dogs. She called the rest of the girls at school little hairless dogs. It's a bold start. Those feelings were kind of mutual, and most of the other girls didn't take too kindly to Frida either. And I feel super weird talking about a young girl's looks, but Frida was becoming noticeably pretty, and she still had that devilish look in her eye, and she had the prominent eyebrows that gave her a very intense look. And she didn't do 
anything the girls were supposed to be doing, and the other girls at the school didn't like that. Frida was involved in student journalism, sports, debating, and instead of wearing fancy dresses and hats and parasols and whatever the fancy girls used to wear back then, she used to occasionally go to school wearing boots, overalls, and always had a boy's backpack that one of her classmates referred to as her, quote, little world on her back that had paper for drawing, textbooks, literature, butterflies, art supplies, and dried flowers. She was different. That's really what it boils down to. For all of the students at the preparatoria who didn't know what to make of Frida Kahlo and didn't connect with her because she was different, they missed out. The kids who made friends with her would talk about her for the rest of their lives. So let's get to know Frida's friends in high school. As much as there were factions within Mexican politics, government, literary, and cultural circles, there were also set cliques within the preparatoria, the kids who would be the future leaders of the country. There were the Contemporaneos, which was the literary group. There were pro-Catholic groups, Marxist groups, and they all papered the hallways with pamphlets and got into fights over their beliefs. This was a highly motivated, passionate, and intense group of students. I was hyper-lazy at a high school that could barely afford textbooks. This is an alien concept to me. I didn't read anything about a chronic masturbation Nicolas Cage movie-watching group, of which I would have been president. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. That's all you have to do. Frida moved easily between the cliques at school, not the Nicolas Cage chronic masturbation clique, that didn't exist. But her closest friends throughout high school was the clique called the Cachuchas, named after the hats they all wore. These kids were bright, outgoing, hilarious, they were the cool kids of the preparatoria. And I imagine if you were a professor or administrator of the school, they were also an absolute goddamn nightmare to deal with. There was Jesus Rios y Valles, whose last name in English is Rivers and Valleys, so Frida called him Landscapes. There was Carmen Jaime, the other girl in the group, and she became later on a scholar of 17th century Spanish literature. Carmen and Frida were very close. The other cachuchas were Jose Gomez Robleda, who would become a professor of psychiatry at the nearby medical school, Alfonso Villa, Manuel Gonzalez Ramirez, a future historian, lawyer, and writer, Miguel Lira, who would go on to be a poet and lawyer, and Augustine Lira, who Frida called Chung Lee, yes, like the Street Fighter II character because he specialized in Chinese poetry. And last, but certainly not least, is Alejandro Gomez Arias, who would be a prominent and respected lawyer, intellectual, and political journalist. Right now, though, he was the leader of the Cachuchas. Alejandro was a few years older than Frida. He was a student athlete, a very gifted public speaker at a young age, charismatic, and somebody that Frida thought was kind of cute. The Cachuchas weren't the most politically active group on campus, but they were passionate about political ideas, reforms, and they were also really committed to disrupting the status quo. They were ideological pains in the ass, smart, and teenagers. It's kind of a fantastic combination, or awful, depending on who you are. 
One time, the Kachuchas rode a donkey through the hallways of the school, and another time, and I feel worse about this one, they tied a complex system of little noise-making firecrackers to a dog. Not enough to hurt the dog, though I still don't support this, and let it loose in the hallways. And as the pops kept going off, the dog was losing it and freaking everybody out. Their favorite place to spend time together was at the Abero American Library down the street from the school. They were away from prying eyes of parents and teachers, and in the library they had like their own full-time breakfast club situation happening. This was amazing! It was a gorgeous library that became their second home, where they acted out plays, flirted and fought, debated the merits of Tolstoy, Karl Marx, Aristotle. The Kachuchas even had their own fake language that Carmen Jaime created, who they also called a vampire because she used to dress like a goth. She was the Ali Sheedy of the group. The Kachuchas were super cool nerds, and they also demanded excellence from their professors. Over the last decade or so, there had been a growing disconnect between the professors at the school and this new wave of student activists that grew up within the Mexican Revolution and afterwards. The disconnect was the foundation of their respective intellectualism and, and how it applied to governance and society. It was a fundamental disagreement. This all gets back to the evolution of the idea of communism in Mexico. The younger generations in Mexico were supporters of communism as a way to reform the societal structure of Mexico itself. And it was an extreme and bold approach, but that's what many people thought Mexico needed to get out of the grip of the European elites. The Gini coefficient was creeping towards one, and people thought they needed radical change. As an example of this generational fundamental disagreement, Frida was extremely upset with one of the most celebrated philosophy professors in Mexico City who also happened to lecture at the Preparatoria, a guy named Antonio Caso. Frida torments this poor bastard. Frida thought that Professor Caso, who was an old, old man, was too conservative and paid too much attention to Aristotle, Plato, Kant, the traditional philosophical education, and that Caso should be giving more of a voice to philosophers like Hegel and Karl Marx. Frida said that Professor Caso, quote, talks and talks very beautifully, but without substance. Something must be done, unquote. So during one of Professor Caso's lectures in the large assembly hall that was a converted chapel, the Kachuchas placed a six-inch stick of dynamite with a 20-minute fuse outside one of the chapel windows, and Jose Gomez Robleda, future renowned psychiatrist, struck the match. 20 minutes later, during Caso's lecture, the dynamite exploded and the window panes of the chapel shattered and glass went everywhere, and gravel from where the makeshift bomb was laying dumped through the window and all over Caso, who just kept on teaching. The Kachuchas had very little respect for professors they didn't like. One of the other favorite Kachucha targets were the artists that were working in the preparatoria at the time. As much as the Mexican Revolution was about political and financial equality, it was also about educational and cultural inclusion. The Mexican muralism movement started slightly before the revolution, primarily with an artist named Gerardo Murillo, who went by Dr. Otto, the Nahuatl word for water. He convinced Porfirio Diaz to let him paint on the outside of buildings as a way to bring art back to the Mexican people, rather than it being restricted to the more European model of oil paintings indoors where nobody could experience anything. 
The concept did gain some traction, but it wasn't really until the Secretary of the Education at the time made murals a government-backed art program in 1921 that it really started to take off. Murals were the perfect way to blend the vast history of Mexico with re-establishing art as something for the people. And murals weren't just for decoration or visual appreciation alone. The subjects were often political statements about workers' rights, famous battles from the revolution, and the promotion of indigenous cultures. This was the art that would promote Mexicanidad, the idea of a mestizo culture with a rich and complicated history that included murals themselves as an art form that went all the way back to the Ochtotitlan rock paintings of the Olmecs, so it's kind of meta. There were also a way to teach history to people who couldn't read, which was mostly everybody, and teach them that they had a history worth knowing about. When Diaz's government fell, only 23% of school-aged children were actually enrolled in school, mostly in urban areas, and approximately 82% of the population in Mexico was illiterate. That's a bananas amount of people that are illiterate. Porfirio Diaz didn't give a shit about people, their education, or sense of history, and the government mural program was designed to turn that around. Because this whole thing started out with the Secretary of Education, early on, a number of the mural commissions were in the preparatoria, and there were large scaffold structures all over the school. The Cachuchas would push together wood shavings and garbage scraps that collected underneath the scaffolding and light them on fire until the artists started wearing guns to work to get them to stop. These artists were not only the more famous and talented in Mexico at the time, but they were also politically aligned with the ideals of the revolution itself. They were part of the revolution. We touched on this a bit in the Pollock series, because one of the Mexican muralists, former child soldier David Alfaro Siqueiros, would be one of Jackson's first mentors. As much as anyone could mentor a 24-year-old Jackson Pollock who was spending his evenings passed out in gutters covered in whiskey in his own vomit. There was also Jose Clemente Orozco, who sided against Pancho Villa and Zapata when the revolution splintered. Orozco saw a lot of bloodshed and violence, and a lot of his murals would be more dark and introspective. So if you see a Mexican mural and it's a huge bummer and a little jarring, it's probably one of Orozco's. Not all murals were meant to make people feel happy, some were designed to make them feel justifiably very angry. There were a lot of murals, though, that were upbeat and inspiring, which brings us to the final artist that comprised the big three of the Mexican muralism movement, Los Tres Grandes, Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera was commissioned to paint the Bolivar Amphitheater at the school, and by the time Diego joined the project, he was already world famous. He was a child prodigy, went to a prestigious art school, worked all over Europe, and was in that Montparnasse crew in Paris with Picasso, Modigliani, who does those portraits with the weird bluish-gray eyes, and Diego became known for his vivid use of color. He also claimed to have been a cannibal and ate people, which wasn't true, but neither was a lot of the stuff that Diego Rivera would say. He was brash, told wildly tall tales, couldn't really keep his mouth shut, and was a complete bullshitter. On the other hand, he was also incredibly charming, had a brilliant mind, was generous when he wanted to be, was charismatic. He was one of those larger-than-life characters, and he was also, quote, fantastically fat with a frog-like appearance. When Frida Kahlo met Diego Rivera in 1922, when she was still in high school, he was already married, and a few years after he was married, had a daughter with one of his mistresses. He was also firmly entrenched in Mexican politics, and he was one of the founders of an artist union and was on the cusp of joining the Mexican Communist Party. 
The mural he chose to paint in the amphitheater is called The Creation, and it's a blend of Catholicism and pre-Columbian people and themes, and it was designed to show racial harmony. There's Adam and Eve, and they're both Mexican, and sitting naked on either sides of the archway that's in the middle of the mural, and there are a bunch of Roman Catholic saints there. It looks very European, like it belongs more in our last series, which kind of makes sense because he just returned from Europe and saw all the Roman Catholic churches and all the frescoes. The creation mural having a Roman Catholic European feel to it was even a self-critique that Diego himself would later have. Working now in such a public place and already being a famous artist, he would often draw big crowds when he worked. People wanted to see the great Diego Rivera create history while painting Mexico's history. People also wanted to watch him because he was incredibly passionate when he painted, told stories and was entertaining, he really leaned into the character, and he wore a crazy Stetson hat and baggy clothes that he would tie off with a huge belt. He looked like a giant hobbit. When Diego was up in the scaffolding painting his amphitheater mural, he was often accompanied by models, one of whom was Lupe Marin, another one of his mistresses, and another model named Nahui, who was very likely a mistress as well, and who all the students thought was, quote, loose. Diego will have a lot of mistresses, so if there's ever a point when you can't tell if a Diego mistress name sounds new or vaguely familiar or if you lose track, don't worry, everybody else did too. A doctor told Diego once that he was physiologically incapable of being monogamous, which he took as a real diagnosis and would tell people as if that were some sort of justification. One of the people who loved to watch Diego work, to such a degree that it made his mistress Lupe Marin furious, was a young Frida Kahlo. She not only liked watching him work, but would also target Diego with pranks. I think it was her way of flirting a little bit. She would steal his food, call him names like Old Fatso, and one time Frida took soap, and she soaped the stairs behind the amphitheater so Diego would slip and fall. He didn't slip because he was such an incredibly slow walker, but the next day, poor old old philosophy professor Antonio Caso, who doesn't teach enough Karl Marx, slipped and fell down the soaped stairs. We're talking so much about Diego Rivera right now because he will become one of the most important characters in this story since he was that person and had that role in Frida's life. Just not yet. Thank God, because when they first met at the Preparatoria, Frida was 15 years old and Diego was 36 with full-on middle-aged man problems. After they met at the school, Frida told one of her friends, quote, My ambition is to have a child by Diego Rivera, and I'm going to tell him so someday, just as soon as I can convince him to cooperate. Unquote. Diego wasn't as confident in their future as a young Frida was, but he does remember meeting her. Quote, she was dressed like any other high school student, but her manner immediately set her apart. She had unusual dignity and self-assurance, and there was a strange fire in her eyes. Her beauty was that of a child, yet her breasts were well-developed. Unquote. Easy, man. That's still legit a child. Well before Diego Rivera, Frida's first love was someone a little more appropriate. Not just in age, but with a shared social and ethical compass, love of language, and insatiable intellectual curiosity. Frida and Alejandro Gomez Arias, the leader of the Cachuchas, started out as friends until sometime in the summer of 1923 when it developed into something much more. There was a significant shift in the tone of their letters to each other. They fell in love. It's adorable. 
Their romance continued that school year, and they would sneak off together and find excuses to stay late and spend time with each other, anything to hide the relationship from Guillermo and Matilda, who would not approve of this at all. This is the opposite of the promise that was impossible to keep. When they couldn't spend time together, Frida and Alejandro would write each other these immensely passionate letters. One extended period was between November 30th, 1923 and March 1924, when violence broke out in Mexico City during a rebellion against then-President Obregón. This was a bad flare-up of the violence like had been seen during the major fighting of the revolution, and around 7,000 people died and the city was in lockdown. But the time apart only intensified the passion between Alejandro and Frida. From a January 12th, 1924 letter, quote, my Alex, what do you know of the revolt? Tell me something so that I am more or less informed about how things are going, since here I am becoming more and more dumb. You will tell me to read the newspapers, but the trouble is that I am too lazy to read the newspapers and I start reading other things. I found very beautiful big books that have a lot of oriental art and that is what your Fiducia is reading now. Well, Melindo, since I have run out of paper on which to write you and I'm going to bore you with so many foolishnesses, I say goodbye and I send you one trillion kisses with your permission. Write me and tell me everything that happens to you, your Frida. Unquote. As you could probably tell from that letter, when they are not separated by social upheaval or disapproving parents, Frida and Alejandro are having a whirlwind romance that was as physically intense as it was emotionally intense. Of the long list of things I don't want to do right now, talking about the sexual relationship between two high school students is right at the top. Yet here we are. Frida's viewpoint on sex, even then, was that it was something that should be enjoyed because it's enjoyable, and it was a way to bring you closer to somebody, even on a human level. And Frida's unapologetic love of sex, assertiveness in what she wants, openness to the idea of sex will be a running theme in our story, and this is where it starts. In late 1924, early 1925, this sexual openness gets tested. Over the Christmas holiday, Frida found out that Alejandro was getting a little close to someone named Anita Reyna. From a January 1st, 1925 letter, quote, My Alex, I find myself alone and it's the most propitious moment to tell you what I'm thinking. Concerning what you tell me about Anita Reyna, naturally, I would not get mad even as a joke. In the first place, because you were only telling the truth, which is that she is, and always will be, very pretty and very cute. And in the second place, because I love all the people you love or have loved for the very simple reason that you love them. Nevertheless, I did not much like the thing of the caresses, because in spite of the fact that I understand that it is very true that she is chulissima, I feel like, well, how can I say it like envy, you know? But it's natural, unquote. So that stings. As open as Frida is to the idea of free love, she'll also let you know when it hurts, and when Anita Reyna is involved, it hurts. This is kind of a weird time for Frida and Alejandro. They're still close and having whatever undefined relationship they have, but Alejandro is older and he's transitioning out of the preparatoria, figuring out next steps in a university, and he's also planning on trips to Europe and America. And traveling for him is easier than it is for Frida, who's still in school, whose parents would never allow an international trip with a boy she isn't married to. It's just not in the cards. And she also won't have the time. 
Money was a problem in the Kahlo house because Guillermo was still struggling with finding steady work, and Frida had to find a job in order to help with the family's expenses. She worked as a cashier at a pharmacy, as a bookkeeper for a lumber yard, but Frida hated working those jobs and was, quite frankly, not a good employee at any of them. I'm right on top of that, Rose. Frida had her eyes set on something else. Medical school. She was always interested in the sciences, and I'm guessing here, but having childhood polio may have pushed her in that direction as well. Frida wanted to be a doctor. That is such a good plan for her, and the crazy part is, as a woman in 1925, she's totally capable of making that happen, and it's actually attainable. In the meantime, though, the family still needed money, and Frida finally found a job that she was interested in at the library and the Ministry of Education. It would keep her around books and learning and would also get her experience with shorthand and typing. She would love the environment and it would keep her on track professionally. When she applied for the job, she met a young woman who also worked at the ministry library that Frida thought was kind of cute and they began sleeping together. It feels like we're talking about a 30-year-old woman. Frida is attacking life and experiences and now she's hooking up with a female government librarian. This is fantastic. Frida is not afraid to find out who she is. Her sexuality was fluid. She liked sex and she liked people. And when those two things lined up, she had no qualms about exploring that. Frida was incredibly sexually liberated. Her mom and dad, however, were not as sexually liberated. And when Guillermo and Matilda found out about this relationship, they quite thoroughly freaked out. And there was a giant scandal. Catholic Matilda probably almost passed out, so that job was no longer a viable option. The next stop after the Lady Library scandal was for a brief time Frida working in a factory. Very brief. She hated it. You can't make Frida do a thing she doesn't want to do. She will make her displeasure known and will self-destruct that situation and make you regret it. Guillermo eventually calls in a favor and found her a job that was a little more in her wheelhouse, working as a paid apprentice to a commercial printer and engraver, a man named Fernando Fernandez, who was a friend of Guillermo's. In addition to the printmaking and engraving, Fernando Fernandez also taught Frida how to draw, and she began making prints of works by a Swedish painter named Anders Zorn. He apparently is pretty well known. I know nothing about him. Not a surprise. Frida was a natural talent at drawing. I mean, she's a natural talent at everything, even though she hadn't really shown a significant interest in the arts yet. Outside of some watercolors with Guillermo, maybe a required class, the words Fernando Fernandez used were, quote, enormous talent. At some point in the apprenticeship, Frida and Fernando Fernandez started sleeping together. If you take away everything we know about Frida today as an icon, without all we're going to learn over however many hours, she's already awesome. Frida is telling everything about the expectations set on her in Mexico in 1925 to go to hell. It was a ridiculously Catholic country, and like much of the rest of the world, women were seen as mostly baby-making machines. They weren't preparing to be doctors. She's now 18 years old and is more well-versed in literature and history than I've ever come close to being. She's naturally talented in the arts. She's a science nerd, becoming fluent in both German and English, and sleeping with government employees and her dad's friends. And I only feel slightly less creepy about saying this now because she is 18, though it still feels weird. But she's turning out to be fantastically gorgeous. 
Frida is cool as hell, exploring everything life has to offer, and does not care what people think about her. And things with Alejandro, they were pretty good at this point. Not perfect. They were young and crazy and just enjoying each other's company for whatever this ends up being. On September 17th, 1925, Frida and Alejandro were able to spend time together doing something that was shockingly new and exciting to be doing, riding on a bus. Riding on a bus now? Not nearly as fun. If you're like me, about a, I guess a week ago by the time this episode goes out, sometimes you accidentally sit down in a seat soaked in somebody else's urine. It was a carpeted seat and I didn't check and it's one of the reasons why I don't sit down on public transportation because of this exact issue. It was awful. But back then, buses were really new and almost magical. The mythical steeds of the public transportation world so they were treated with more goddamn respect. It wasn't until 1908 when Henry Ford began mass production of the Model T that automobiles really consistently made an appearance on roads. With his production of the Model T Ford, Henry Ford changed industrialization and transportation forever. He also really, really hated Jewish people. A lot. His anti-Semitism was so bad that even the Henry Ford Museum can't ignore it and has an article online titled, quote, Henry Ford and Anti-Semitism, a complex story. It's not a very complex story. It's actually pretty simple. Ford wrote a bunch of pamphlets, books, and newspaper articles that he had published in his own newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, in a series he called The International Jew, one of the articles in the newspaper being titled The International Jew, The World's Problem. Ford will eventually run into a buzzsaw when he meets Frida Kahlo in one of our future episodes and she will take no shit from him. But that's not today. With automobiles becoming more widely available, there became a new form of public transportation in the motor-powered bus. Motor buses were first created by companies like Daimler and the London General Omnibus Company around the mid to late 1890s. They were large, wood and metal structures with single and double-decker options, and they were exported all over the world, mostly from the UK and Germany. Mexico City was one of the cities that adopted the motorized bus to supplement their trolley lines for public transportation, and people lost their minds at how futuristic this was. This would be like if a year from now, wherever you lived, imported a bunch of hover cars that took you to work. It would be amazing! Once the buses showed up in Mexico City, people stopped taking the trolleys, so the buses were always packed and the trolleys were mostly empty because of this shiny new object. Buses were new, so there was novelty, and the routes were more flexible because they weren't on a track. The morning of September 17th, Alejandro and Frida were in Mexico City on some sort of adventure and were riding around the city in buses and having a blast. It was the day after the huge celebration in the city on the anniversary of the revolt that started the Mexican War for Independence, so there was probably a lot of people with hangovers and the city still had to be humming. Frida and Alejandro hopped on and off buses all that day. One time they got off a bus because Frida needed a new parasol because it was a little rainy that morning and I think she misplaced hers. They were having a bus adventure. It sounds stupid to say that now, but this was mind-blowing at the time. It was a completely new way to see Mexico City, and it was an exciting time for both of them. When they were all done, they hopped on a bus that was headed back to Coyoacan. This is one of those moments where we should be present and enjoy. Maybe take a seat next to these two lovebirds on the bus, a seat that surely isn't covered in urine, and take a bus tour of Mexico City in 1925. <laughs> 
This is a pretty great story so far. Frida has overcome polio not just as a disease, but one that's left her physically a bit different than other people. She's receiving a world-class education, and who knows, maybe she can cure polio one day. She's got a career to look forward to, one of the extraordinarily few women at the time who can say that. And yeah, she's got a crazy family, as most of us do, even if hers is just a little more special with Matilda Jr. running away and Guillermo not really talking to the rest of her sisters, and Matilda's probably a little on edge because she's keeping this family from being on the streets, but she does love her girls. And Jesus, Matilda also really loves Jesus. But she also has to be proud of Frida, if not incredibly worried because her daughter is not like anybody else in Coyoacan. But Matilda didn't have a whole lot of options in life, and Frida has all of them, including Alejandro. Even if Frida and Alejandro aren't meant to be romantic partners forever, they still have right now, and they're having fun. Frida referred to herself as a callejera, someone who loves wandering the streets, and now the world streets are much more available. The world got smaller after World War I with the increase in global travel and trade, and she's not gonna be able to go on an upcoming trip to America with Alejandro. Not this time, but new cultures and people. The trolley collided with the side of the bus they were riding at a 90-degree angle. The trolley wasn't moving very fast, but when it hit the bus, it kept going, pushing into the bus sideways with the entire bus bending in the middle from the weight of the train. As the train kept slowly moving forward, the tension in the structure of the bus kept building and building until finally the pressure gave way and the bus exploded in half with metal, wood, and glass shooting everywhere. And then the train kept moving. By the time the trolley stopped, there were bodies everywhere. Many got caught underneath the train and run over. The bus was packed with people, and a lot of them died. With buses being such a new concept, people didn't know how to drive them safely, and bus accidents weren't uncommon, though this one was particularly bad. When Alejandro finally came to, he was surrounded by chaos and smoke and twisted metal, and he realized he was underneath the train. Where is Frida? I need to find her. That was his first thought. As he searched among the dead and the brutally injured survivors, with blood everywhere and people screaming in pain and for help, he heard onlookers yelling, La bailarina, la bailarina. And that's when he saw Frida. The glass, wood, and metal shrapnel from the bus exploding in half shredded her clothing from her body, and Frida was completely naked. She was covered in blood and gold dust from a bag that a passenger had been carrying. Between the gold dust and the sheer amount of blood covering Frida's naked body, people at the scene thought she was a dancer. La bailarina, la bailarina! When Alejandro got to Frida, he saw the wound that was the source of all the blood. A rod that served as a handrail on the bus broke off and pierced Frida through her left hip on the side, went all the way through her body at a downward angle, and came out the other side through her vagina. That is a horrifying injury. 
A man that was at the scene helping out also saw Frida, and he was yelling above the chaos, we have to take it out, let's take it out, and he put his knee in the side of Frida's body to use his leverage and pulled the bus handrail back out through her body. Frida screamed so loudly that she could be heard over the sirens of the ambulance that just arrived. By the time the ambulance got to the hospital and the doctors could assess the damage and begin operating, they were pretty sure Frida was going to die. In addition to being punctured through her body, her left shoulder was dislocated, she broke multiple ribs, had three breaks in her pelvis, a broken collarbone, her right leg was fractured in 11 places, and her right foot was fully dislocated and mashed to pieces, and her spinal column was also broken in three different places. Her body was absolutely crushed. By surviving this crash, those lessons of profound loneliness and excruciating pain that Frida learned at six years old will now be learned all over again, and over again, and over again. This is the beginning of the end for Frida physically, the girl who recovered from polio by wrestling, swimming, boxing, riding her bike with friends. That's over. From here on out, Frida's body will fail her. It will degrade over time in unimaginable ways, and she will forever know excruciating pain. It will always be part of her life. When describing the iron handrail of a public bus piercing her entire body and coming out through her vagina, turning her into a human martini olive, and then having that handrail yanked back out, Frida would later say, quote, I lost my virginity. And that's right around the time when I started crying at the airport. Because that's a goddamn hilarious joke. There is no fat on that joke. That's the perfect joke right there for a bunch of reasons. That's who we're dealing with. Someone who can take events like this in her life and turn them into something. Art, humor, whatever can be made out of unrelieved tragedy. This accident changed the course of Frida's life, and its impact will affect the rest of her life, but it doesn't defeat her. That's the mindset, the persistence, mixed with the dark sense of humor and a lot of passion. That's what we're going to get to see in Frida's paintings. After a long and painful recovery that will for sure include more weird family stuff, the physical recovery is only part of this. The only person from the family to come visit Frida in the hospital right away was Matilda Jr. after she read about the accident in the newspaper. Frida said of the support she got in the hospital for Matilda Jr., quote, They kept us in this kind of horrifying ward. It was Matilda who lifted my spirits. She told me jokes. She was fat and ugly, but she had a great sense of humor, unquote. That's another really weird time for a dig. As upsetting of a period of time in Frida's life this is, and it will be like this for a while, it does get better. But then it gets worse, then it gets better again. But we are just getting started. We have so much to talk about. There is copious amounts of sex, tragedy, a spy network, Henry Ford's anti-Semitism. And in the middle of all of that, there will be art. So until next time, take care of yourselves, everybody.
Cuando tú me dices que no me quieres Cuando tú me dices que no me quieres Me imagino que tienes otras mujeres Y arriba, y arriba iré Las mujeres bonitas que no se casan, pues ¿qué hacen? Las mujeres bonitas que no se casan, miraron hacia el espejo 